Well, again, happy Easter uh, and welcome, church family. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, it's so great to have you join us here for Church Online. I also want to say a special welcome to our Pyeongtaek Church family. Uh, so great to have you with us on this special day. Well, on this Easter Sunday, uh, we're going to be drawing our attention to John chapter 20, uh, which is the passage that was just creatively read for us. Uh, but before we do that, I want to remind us all about what the Apostle Paul wrote about the significance of the resurrection. You see, the resurrection is not just something reserved for Easter or even something that uh, we reserve for our Sunday gatherings. The resurrection is that which is of first importance. Paul told the church in Corinth, For I delivered to you what was of first importance. In other words, there are a lot of important things in this world. And being who Paul was, he knew a lot of important things. But this was far and away the most important that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures. And so our aim today is really simple. We're going to attempt to point to that which is of first importance, to Jesus Christ, the Savior, the King of Kings, our Lord of Lords, and to his gospel. Well, again, to do that, we're going to turn to John chapter 20, and what I'd like us to see in this passage is what makes the gospel uh, good news. And I hope and pray that this speaks to each and every one of you uh, listening or watching here uh, online today. Well, here's what John tells us. Uh, Jesus, just a few days earlier, uh, he's been betrayed. He's been falsely accused. He suffered death by crucifixion. And then he was buried uh, in a borrowed tomb. And then John chapter 20, verse 1 says this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Uh, now, uh, all of the gospel writers tell us that this took place not on the third day, uh, which it did, but they all say the first day of the week. They all use that language. And what they are telling us by telling us that the resurrection happened on the first day of the week is that something radically new has happened. Uh, the first day of the week is a sign that there is a dawning of a new creation. You know, today uh, you hear people say all the time, you know, I just can't believe uh, in a resurrection because those kinds of things just don't happen. To which we respond, uh, exactly. Right? That's why this is such a, a big deal. It's such a big deal that we've actually reoriented our week around this event. Uh, since the first century, our day of worship has been the first day of the week. It's been on Sunday because of what we are going to see happened on this day. Well, again, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb, uh, and she's actually not alone. The other gospel narratives tell us uh, tell us that, and we actually see that in verse 2 as well, when it says, we do not know where they have laid him. Uh, but John here, he's, he's putting in his gospel a particular emphasis on this woman, uh, which we're going to talk about in just uh, a moment. Notice as well, though, in, in verse 1, that it says that Mary came to the tomb early while it was still dark. 
Uh, and I think it's clear uh, that this is not just describing the scene, but this is really symbolic as well. You see, uh, one of John's main themes throughout his gospel has been this idea of darkness to light. Um, even right in the beginning of John 1, you see the word light used around seven times. And now we're going to see this theme reach its full culmination here in John chapter 20. Jesus' disciples, uh, his followers, they are currently in darkness. They don't understand uh, all of these things yet. They're not even anticipating a resurrection, uh, but they are about to go from darkness of unbelief and misunderstanding to the light of belief and understanding. Well, again, it's dark. Uh, it's early morning. Most scholars believe it was somewhere between 3 and 5 a.m. And when Mary arrives, she sees that the stone has been taken away from the tomb. It's been rolled to the side. And so immediately she's troubled by this. And what does she do? Well, that's verse 2. So she, that's Mary, ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Mary runs to Peter, and the text says to the other disciple, which we know is John, uh, the one who is writing this, and it seems that Mary is very nervous that perhaps someone has stolen the body uh, of Jesus. And what you'll notice uh, in this whole story, and you see it in the other gospel accounts as well, is again that none of these disciples were anticipating the resurrection even though Jesus had told them time and time and time again throughout his ministry that he would rise on the third day. But even with that, you don't see any of the disciples uh, waiting for this event at the tomb on the third day. Uh, the, the women uh, go to the tomb uh, to anoint Jesus' body. That's why they're there. They're not looking for a resurrection. They're there to anoint his body. They think they're in the midst of a funeral. Uh, there's not even a, the slightest hint of thought that a bodily resurrection has taken place. And, and you see that further in verse 3, because when Peter and John hear, that, uh, hear from Mary that the body has been stolen, what's their response? Look at it here in verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, again, that's John, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So John writes that he and Peter, they just start running. They share uh, Mary's concern. And I, and I love here that John records uh, for all of history to know that, oh, by the way, um, I, we were running, but I was faster than Peter. That's just a funny note to me. Uh, he beat him to the tomb. But let's keep reading. They get to the tomb, and then we see this happens in verse 5. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So John, again, he gets there first, 
and he peers into the tomb. And what he sees is the linen cloths there, but there's no body. But then Peter shows up, and he just walks directly into the tomb. Right? That's Peter for you, really bold, courageous. Uh, but yet again, there's just some folded clothes. There's no body. Uh, bottom line, the tomb uh, is empty. And you could sort of imagine this uh, with me. These two disciples who had been following Jesus, who had left everything to follow him, uh, their teacher has, has died And now uh, they run to his tomb because Mary has given them this awful news that somebody has taken Jesus' body, and when they get there to see it for themselves, it's confirmed. The body is gone. Jesus is gone. Uh, One quick note here as well. I think we see here our our first major clue, though, that the body was not stolen. Uh, Because, again, the text says here that the cloths were, were folded up. Now, I'm no, I'm no detective, uh, but if, if someone had stolen Jesus' body, if that had really happened, uh, if they had, had really come in, in the middle of the night and, and taken him and brought him to another place, uh, why would they roll back the stone, take Jesus out of his clothes, and then actually take the time to nicely fold them up before they took Jesus and ran away with his body? Uh, that just doesn't really make a lot of sense. Uh, who would take the time to do that while they're committing a, a crime? Um, so this is all providing us with evidence of the, uh, of the authenticity of this miracle. Again, none of the disciples expected this to happen. They're, they're blind to it. Uh, we see that this giant stone has been rolled away. Uh, there's an empty tomb. And the clothes in the tomb that were, that were covering Jesus, they're folded up neatly. Well, then John goes in the tomb as well. He follows Peter. It's in verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, uh, so again, John reminds us, again, oh, I'm faster than Peter, uh, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. So here we get this really interesting indication of faith. Uh, The text here and the context of the rest of John's gospel seem to indicate that at this point, uh, the apostle John has some level of belief after seeing the folded clothes that, that Jesus is actually alive. He has this uh, notion of belief within himself But while that seems to be the case, uh, John does still admit here uh, this point, that they still did not understand the full breadth or the entire narrative of the scriptures and the reality that Jesus had to rise from the dead to be the Messiah, to be their Savior. The disciples will certainly get to that point. Uh, They will soon begin to understand that the whole Bible pivots on one weekend in Jerusalem, on the resurrection right here in John 20, but they're not at that point just yet. Well, continuing through the story, verse 10 says this, Then the disciples simply went back to their homes. And you can imagine them sitting at home trying to figure all this out, like what's happened, what's going on. 
Uh, and again, they eventually do get it, right? The, the rest of the scriptures tells us that. In fact, in the book of Acts, uh, we see uh, that a little more than a, a month after uh, the resurrection of Jesus, uh, this resurrection becomes central to their teaching. Uh, they'll begin to recite the Psalms, like specifically Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, which both emphasize the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus. Uh, they will understand for really the first time their Old Testament scriptures because of the empty tomb. And uh, they will write what we today know as the New Testament. And they will tell us that the resurrection is the basis of our salvation, that Jesus was raised to life for our justification. And that if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, then we are still caught in our sins. And so that brings us to our first point today. What makes the gospel good news? Number one, there is hope for the world. There is hope for the world. Because the tomb is empty, there is hope for the world. And like John, if you believe in Jesus, the scriptures say that you have been raised to life with him. And one day, you will receive a new body. You will inherit a, a new earth where you will never weep again. You'll never attend another funeral. You'll never have to lock your doors at night. There'll be no more aches. There'll be no more pains. There'll be, there'll be no more uh, global pandemics. And we will see and be with the risen Jesus there, where peace and righteousness dwell. Because the tomb was empty that day, because Jesus is risen, uh, there is no more fear of death, and we have purpose. We have hope. And again, this is a, this is a powerful living hope, and it's available to anyone who believes in him and calls on his name. Well, let's continue to work through this text, and we're actually going to uh, going to now see what I believe are, are three hope-filled stories that follow the discovery of the empty tomb. And each encounter with the risen Jesus will give us another reason the gospel uh, is good news. So let's get back to Mary Magdalene. I told you we'd be getting back to her. Let's go back to her story. And through Mary's story, um, I believe we get Point number two, uh, I believe that we see that there is grace for the broken, or there is grace given to the broken, number two. Mary becomes, really, in my opinion, becomes a legacy for us. Uh, we are about to see here in, in John chapter 20 that she was the first uh, person to see the resurrected Christ. But not only that, she becomes the first person to ever proclaim the risen Christ, which makes her really, technically, the first evangelist. Uh, and again, uh, this just builds an even stronger case for the authenticity of this resurrection story. Uh, because according to Jewish custom and tradition, uh, specifically the Mishnah, a, a woman's eyewitness testimony uh, was not accepted in the court of law. And so, again, if you're going to fabricate a resurrection story uh, that would serve as the center of your religion, uh, you would not place a woman as your primary witness, especially a woman like Mary Magdalene, 
who before encountering Jesus was actually inhabited by seven demons. This would not be your first choice. It wouldn't make any logical sense to use her as the first eyewitness unless you were simply writing history, which is exactly what I believe that John is doing for us here. And so here is this this woman again, and she gives us great hope because she was once so, so broken. We see again, the other disciples go home, but what does she do? She stays at the tomb, and she's, she's weeping there. Uh, so she just loves Jesus so much that she decides to stay. And of course, we know the scriptures tell us that uh, those who have been forgiven much love much, and we see here, we're going to see here that that Mary certainly loved her Lord very much. Well, then between verses 11 through 15, uh, we see that Mary then decides to, to look into the tomb for herself. Maybe she just wants to double check. Uh, and when she does, what happens? Well, she sees two angels in white sitting there where the body, body of Jesus had been, one at the head and, and one at the feet. And at seeing them, they ask her this question. Look at this text with me. Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So again here, we see that she's still not convinced of resurrection. She thinks still that someone has taken away the body. And so the text continues. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Notice the terms of endearment there. Uh, Jesus cares about her emotions, and certainly cares for our emotions as well. He asks her with great concern, What are you doing here? And it's sort of ironic. Uh, She thinks he's the gardener. And of course, uh, theologically, we know he is the gardener and he will restore the garden that Adam lost uh, because of his redemptive work. Uh, But then look what Jesus does. I I love this. Jesus simply calls her by name. It's in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary. And if you're not familiar with, with the Bible, We see earlier in John 10, Jesus himself says, I am the good shepherd, and my sheep know me by name. I know them. They hear my voice, and they follow me. And here Jesus calls out to her, Mary. Well, she she turned at that. She she turned and said to him in Aramaic, uh, Rabbani, which means teacher. In other words, Mary recognizes Jesus. And then apparently she she runs over to him, or she's already close to him, but she gets close to him, and she tightly holds on to him. She clings to him because Jesus says to her, uh, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. And then listen, Jesus makes this wonderful statement of grace that I think is so easy for us to miss when we read this text. And it's actually a word of grace that's not just given to Mary, but to the other disciples as well. He says, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father 
to my God and your God. I don't want you to miss the significance uh, of that phrase. He calls the disciples, get this, these men who just a few days earlier had abandoned him at the cross, these, these disciples who had left him, denied him, he calls them brothers. This is incredible grace. And then he tells Mary, let them know that I'm going back uh, to the Father. But notice the language here. He says, I'm going to my Father and your Father. I'm going back to my God and your God. And so, yes, we know that Jesus is the unique Son of God. Uh, We know that because he rose from the dead. But this is also a reminder to us uh, that we are also part of his family, that we are brothers and sisters. And so what you see on this first Easter morning with Jesus' encounter with Mary is that Jesus not only offers us new life, but he also offers us a new family. It's incredible grace to broken, imperfect people. Well, uh, Mary listens to Jesus. Uh, She follows his instructions. She goes to the disciples and tells them, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Uh, There's such great encouragement here uh, because, you know, you might be watching here today uh, and you may find yourself or or think of yourself as as somewhat of a lost cause. Uh, You may be there, sitting there today and, and think that your past decisions Uh, your mistakes, that they have defined you. But the good news of of Easter is that Jesus' past actually uh, defines us. That what he has done is what actually defines us. Uh, Mary Magdalene was a woman, we know from the scriptures, she was a woman of a very poor reputation. Now, she was not someone the majority of us uh, would ever want anything to do with, prior to experiencing the grace of Jesus. Uh, But look, now she becomes the first evangelist, and she's the first person that sees that Jesus has been risen from the dead. Jesus doesn't go first to the teachers of the law. Uh, He doesn't go to the political powers of that day. Uh, He goes to the woman who was previously possessed by seven demons. Because Jesus is risen, there is grace for the broken. He did it with Mary Magdalene. He did it with me, uh, and he can and is willing to do it for you. And certainly we praise his name for that. Well, uh, notice next that, that Jesus appears to the disciples, and, and what a group they are, right? Uh, But through their narrative here, uh, we'll get our third point, which is this. Um, There is peace for the fearful. Uh, John 20 shows us there's peace for the fearful. That's a reality of the resurrection. Look at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews— Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So again, uh, not only are these, uh, these men, these disciples, not anticipating resurrection, 
and not only are they not going uh, to the tomb, they're actually locked up. They've locked themselves away. Uh, they're afraid, actually, because of everything that just went down and all of the drama uh, that had unfolded with Jesus' crucifixion just a few days earlier on Friday. But then what happens? Jesus shows up, and what does he say? Shalom, shalom. And we can only imagine, uh, before he says those words, the, the fear that came over the disciples in that very moment when Jesus appears. Uh, because remember, uh, the door is, is locked. And so a, one of a couple things must have happened. Either Jesus in his glorified body just walks right through the wall, or walk right through the door, um, or he simply just appears out of nowhere, sort of into the room. Uh, but either way, they are terrified. And so he tells them something that he tells them three different times, actually, in John 20. Peace be with you. Shalom. Be at peace. Um, on top of that, it seems that Jesus has to do some convincing that it's really him, uh, because he goes to them, and he, he shows him his hands, he, he shows him his side, and, and that seems to put the disciples uh, at ease. Uh, they know now Jesus has not come to harm them. Jesus has come for their good. Uh, he has not come to punish them. He has come to save them. And he has come to send them. That's really important. It's verse 21. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And of course, we know that this was all, always Jesus' message from the very beginning. We see this in, in the other Gospels as well. Uh, even right before this, in John 17, Jesus prays. He says, I'm not taking my followers out of the world. No, not at all. I'm sending my followers into the world. <clears throat> and so understand, at least for, for John's Gospel, a major component to the Easter story was this given mission. Jesus is risen. He appears to the disciples and then he tells them, go, uh, go out, share what you've seen. Because our faith is a missionary faith, and we serve a missionary God. Well, uh, that could be daunting, uh, that a big task, uh, but there is some comfort uh, in this message and this mission, because we find uh, through Jesus' words that he tells us that he's actually going to be with us, and that he's going to send uh, the Holy Spirit, his power to help us. That's verse 22. Look at it. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And so we see here a foretaste of what's going to happen on the day of Pentecost, a little more than uh, a month later. And at that time, we know what happens. It's Acts chapter 2. We see that the, the Spirit comes in power, and these uh, fearful disciples are, are turned into, or transformed into fearless disciples. Uh, these disciples, right here in John 20, they are at peace now with Jesus. But they will soon also become courageous and bold for the sake of Jesus' kingdom. They will represent Christ just as we are called to do. 
And they will bring this message that we read right, right there in John 20, that because of Jesus, there is forgiveness of sins. These disciples are totally transformed to the point where they will each, uh, maybe except for John, we're not sure through church history, but the rest of them we know will actually die for their faith. That's how much they're transformed. But that's what the reality of the resurrection does. Jesus appears to Mary, who is broken, and she experiences grace. He appears to the disciples, who are fearful, and they move to being peaceful. And then we move to our last scene, and it centers on the, the disciple Thomas. And I believe his story gives us our last point for why the gospel is good news today. Number four, we see the reality of the re- uh, resurrection tells us there is truth for the skeptic. There is truth for the skeptic. Uh, Thomas has got this, uh, or he's been given this, this nickname that's sort of gone throughout all of his history, right? Uh, Doubting Thomas. Um, I don't think it's really fair, actually, though, uh, because that doesn't describe who Thomas ends up being. Now, I think we should actually call him Believing Thomas because he's really a wonderful example uh, to us. Uh, but, but anyway, we're going to see that uh, Thomas shows some doubt here. Uh, and when it comes to believing the gospel, there are really a few different types uh, of doubt. Uh, I'm going to try to make this really simple. But there are some people who experience moral doubt. Uh, and moral doubt is, is doubt that's rooted in our own preferences or a person's own preferences or their personal desires. And we really see this a lot throughout culture. Uh, People who don't want their belief uh, to interfere with their choices. And so because of that, they just end up uh, really doubting the faith or or walking away from the faith altogether because they just want to live however they want. And then there's another common form of doubt, which which has been called a gullible doubt. I think it's a good word for it. Gullible doubt. And this happens to people when they aren't really deeply rooted in, in the word, when they aren't really well-versed in doctrine. Uh, the example of this, it'd be, it'd be the student who goes off to university, and when they are faced with all uh, sorts of objections to Christianity from their peers and, for, and from their professors, they're really unable to, to answer uh, those objections. Uh, this, this typically happens because of a lack of discipleship in their life, Uh, And so, really, we need to, at every age, make sure that we really are digging into the faith, uh, rooting ourselves in the Word, so that, like Ephesians 4 says, we're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. But none of that is Thomas. Uh, What I believe we see with Thomas is what's called a sorrowful doubt. And sorrowful doubt is the kind of doubt that stems from, from disappointment. Uh, Maybe a lot of you have experienced this. I know I have at at times. Uh, It's when a person has been so hurt in life that they begin to doubt their faith. Uh, It's it's a person who's experienced real pain. Uh, They're they're grieving. Uh, And because of that, uh, maybe that starts to get them to to question God and eventually even deny the uh, the actual existence of God. And so if that's, that's you right now, let me just quickly encourage you uh, to let the resurrection show you that your current sorrow will eventually give way to glory. 
that because the tomb is empty, there is hope right now, even in the midst of your despair. Uh, but here we have Thomas. Uh, he believed in miracles, right? He saw them for himself when he was walking with Jesus. But we also know he, he was a Jew. And so he believed that God could do things like part the Red Sea or bring manna, food, down from heaven. But right now, uh, in the moment we're about to see, he doubts. He doubts. And why? Well, again, uh, it's because he is so radically disappointed. He thought Jesus was the Messiah. But Jesus was crucified, and that's not what happens to messiahs. Uh, messiahs are supposed to be uh, victorious, not defeated. Uh, but he is about to find out that Jesus was victorious. Again, not, just not in the way that he anticipated. So here's the scene. He's, he's deeply hurt. And now his friends are telling them, or telling him, that they have seen the Lord. But he just can't come to believe it. And so he says, unless I see the nail prints in his hands and touch his side for myself, I just cannot believe. And that brings us to verse 26. The disciples are still uh, locked inside their, their room. Uh, and look, look what happens. Verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and, and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it, in, uh, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. He says, there's really only two options here, Thomas. Uh, believe me or, or don't, but I'm asking you to choose belief. And then Thomas gives us one of the greatest confessions uh, in the New Testament to Jesus. He says, my Lord and my God. You know, a lot of scholars of the book of John uh, believe that this enti that the entire gospel of John has really been leading up to this very moment, to this confession. Thomas goes from unbelief to belief, from doubt to certainty, and his confession should be our confession every single day of our lives. That every day uh, we, we, we would remind ourselves or need to remind ourselves that we need to live out the truth that Jesus is our Lord and Jesus is our God. And, and to that confession, Jesus uh, actually speaks to each and every one of us. He says to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed, not, not lesser, not disadvantaged. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He says, uh, you get the blessings and the promises that come along with the resurrection if you believe. Then here is where we close. Uh, John then gives us the purpose of his book. It's in verses 30 through 31 says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. He says, Every, everything I've written is for this purpose. It's right here. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name.
This is written, he says, so that you may believe. That's present tense. It's active. It's ongoing. These truths of the gospel, the reality of the resurrection that's proclaimed right here, it's, it's told so that we would continue to believe and continue to affirm that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, the promised one, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we have life in his name. Mary Magdalene, again, she goes from enslaved to evangelist. The disciples go from fearful to fearless. Thomas goes from from doubter to faithful missionary, because this is what Jesus does. Jesus Christ is alive, and he changes lives. Listen to to what one of our earliest church fathers wrote many, many years ago, actually in the late 300s, about the reality of the, re- of the resurrection. Hear this. He says this. Christ is risen, and you, O death, are annihilated. Christ is risen, and the evil ones are cast down. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life is liberated. Christ is risen, and the tomb is emptied of its dead. For Christ, having risen from the dead, is become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Because of the resurrection, there is hope for the world. There is grace for the broken. There is peace for the fearful. And there is truth for the skeptic. This is Easter. The tomb is empty. Jesus is risen. And there is life in his name.